The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let us also now open up the scriptures to the book of Colossians. Uh, We are in Colossians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, grab one from the rack there in front of you. It's on page 984 in Colossians chapter 2. We remember that the book of Colossians is written to a small church, a relatively new church, that were still about the business of figuring things out in the Christian life, and they had lessons to learn by way of fits and starts, and they also took some side roads and detours that the Apostle Paul writes to them with encouragement to avoid in the future, which is a blessing to us, so that we would learn to not make some of the mistakes that the Colossian church has made, but that we would rightly learn to follow Jesus. So, as you've uh, got your Bible open there, I believe I've told you something of this man before. Let me tell you uh, very briefly about a man named Simon Stylides in the 5th century. Long time ago, Simon Stylides uh, was a Christian monk. He was very into extreme forms of self-depredation, so much so that his monastery kicked him out because he was too extreme of a monk. For a year and a half, uh, he locked himself into a tiny room, and it was rumored that he would go something like 40 to 50 days without eating and only limited uh, in uh, taking in of water and his fame spread around the the world that he was in in the ancient near east people would hear about him and they would want to come and visit him they would want to look upon this man who had such incredible seemingly devotion and such incredible willingness to sacrifice his own body they would want to come and learn from him and he didn't want any of that he didn't want any of attention he didn't want people coming to him so what he did was he lived atop a pillar Uh, Simon Stylides lived on top of a nine-foot pillar uh, for the last 30 years of his life, and when he eventually found a taller one, he lived on top of a 20-foot high pillar to prove his constant desire to be totally devoted to God through his body-punishing lifestyle and asceticism, removing from himself all worldly pleasures. And he is remembered in church history as Simon Stylides of the pillar, and he's actually canonized as a saint in the Coptic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Roman Catholic Church. When he died, the the, the churches fought over his bones because they wanted to take his bones, use them as relics, and build additional pillars so that they would learn from his uh, self-asceticism and holy deprivation lifestyle. The reason why I tell you about Simon Stylides is not at all to suggest to you that you should go live on top of your roof or not at all that you should go live on top of some ancient pillar, but rather as an illustration, I think, of what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in chapter 2, that there is something of a tendency in us as human beings to take the teaching of the Word of God and run to an extreme that the Bible actually does not approve of. To take the teaching of the Scriptures and run to an extreme... I think this is an illustration of what Paul would call something of only half learning Christ. Not really understanding the fullness of Christ. The reason why the Apostle Paul writes the book of Colossae is because there in that region there was constantly this notion that if you really want to experience fullness and satisfaction in life, you need to do this, this, and this. And it was always an issue of saying, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z if you really want to experience fullness. And the main point of the book of Colossae is that uh, Christ 
has the fullness of deity dwelling in him. And if you as a Christian believer are in faith union with him, you do not lack. And so when people come to you suggesting that you're missing out, Paul wants you to have Christian reflexes to say no to those things that suggest to you that you're lacking if you only have Jesus. Christ is sufficient for your life. Rather than learning these half-truths about the gospel, Paul wants us to be fully content to know Christ and be satisfied in Him and not face these various perils that the church was under. We need to learn that today as well. So we'll hear that in Colossians 2. That's the big picture. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures and we'll hear them together today by faith. Gracious God, we pause now and we praise You for a house of worship in a free country with manifold blessings afforded to us that we have a copy of the scriptures in a language that we can understand. Lord, the blessings are just manifold. Help us not to forsake them. Help us not to take a poor advantage. But Lord, today to give ourselves to the reading and teaching and proclamation of the word of God that we might receive it by faith and so be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Colossians chapter 2, at verse 20 through the end of the chapter. Colossians 2 at verse 20. This is the Word of God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open here. So, what's the problem? What's the problem in Colossae? What's happening there in this region that would make Paul, under divine inspiration, uh, write uh, this warning? Uh, what we've been seeing in chapter 2 is these various warnings where he's encouraging them, don't be led astray according to this. So what we know is that there was all sorts of different teaching going on in Colossae that was attempting to lead the church away from a proper understanding of the gospel. Well, what is this particular issue that Paul now writes about here? Again, if you look at verse 23 there, chapter 2, verse 23, you'll see what the problem is. The problem was, was that there was a stream of teaching in Colossae that was saying, if you really want to pursue a sincere Christian life, if you really want to stop the indulgence of the flesh, I have a secret method for you. Right? There in verse 23, Paul talks about no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this is the problem, that there were those in the church who were trying to encourage, and, and maybe even by righteous motivation, wanted to help Christians make advancements in their holiness, in their righteousness, and in their behavior by stopping the indulgence of their flesh, meaning giving themselves over to sin with their body. They are fighting with their remaining corruption, and they want to have a strategy 
for making themselves stop sinning. It's the most basic way to say it. Paul is addressing the ways that they were going about trying to make themselves stop sinning and saying, can I just tell you that what you're doing doesn't work? It doesn't work because you don't understand the way the gospel works. So let me say to you by way of something of an introduction here at the beginning, every one of us who are attempting to pursue the Lord with some sincerity, come to worship, we hear the call to confession, we think to ourselves, I need to unburden my heart. And we also have this thought that says to ourselves, I should probably stop fill in the blank. Or I should probably start fill in the blank. And by that, we have this motivation to want to increase the sincerity of our Christian devotion by no longer doing or to start doing fill, fill in the blank, right? Your lives have different manifestations of this, but we all understand what this is talking about. This sense of, I really should, or I wish I would, or I need to start, and I want to get myself in line. You know what? Inherently, it's a, it's a righteous desire. I want to I bring myself into conformity with the Lord and with His will. I want to do that. But there's a way to do that that ends up with you in a ditch, is what Paul is saying. And if you don't understand that, you will take this course into that ditch. So he wants you to avoid it. So what is it that they're doing that results in them failing to make progress in their spiritual life? They are trying to stop the indulgence of their flesh, but their strategies aren't working. What is it that they're doing? Well, you see it in verse 20 and 21. The Colossians were giving themselves over, Paul says, to regulations. Submitting to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Notice how... Paul asked the question in verse 20, why do you do this? And he, the why is, why do you give yourselves over to these regulations? So the false teaching that's crept in here at this point is crept into the church. It has to do with this idea of, look, if I, if I just follow the rules, if I just get following the rules right, if I can make all the rules fit exactly narrowly, extra strict, if I can really screw down tight on my narrow vision of what it means to live for Jesus, then I can avoid sin altogether. Just like Simon Stylides, I'll go up on top of the pillar where nobody can touch me and I won't be influenced by anything. I'll get it right, I'll get it right, and I really will. Paul says, why do you do that? Why do you go live on top of the pillar? Simon, it's not gonna work. You can't escape the influence of sin. But what's happening here in the church is that they were adopting all sorts of rules and codes of conduct that exceeded God's moral law, that went beyond what the Bible says, that they intended to design to prevent them uh, from straying. They wanted to stay on the straight and narrow, and they just wanted to make sure they got it right, and they added rules to keep it from happening. They were looking for prescriptions for every aspect of behavior, and if they could be exhaustive enough and strict enough, they could certainly steal, steer free from sin. That's their goal. And you know what? Again, we should recognize something of a righteous desire. Even, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day were motivated by a desire to get it right. But in their desire to get it right, they actually went wrong. And so it's just at that point where there's a righteous desire but taking the wrong path that Paul wants to say, it's good that you have a righteous desire, but take it this way and not that way. So why is it that 
all these regulations, all these rules, all these additional burdens, why is it that these things don't work? Paul says, look, why, why, as if you are still alive to the world, do you submit to these things? They don't work. And why is it that these things don't work? They don't work because sincere Christian living, sincere sanctification, transformation, sincere holiness is not first of all, about the externals of behavior. Real Christian sincerity, real Christian transformation, real Christian holiness is, first of all, a heart issue before it's a behavior issue. And the Colossians were trying to transform themselves on the outside first and then work it in. And Paul says... That sincere Christian transformation happens on the inside and then manifests outward. They have got this reversed. And as a result of reversing it, they're leading themselves down a wrong path. Now listen, this is really important for us to understand, not only because we want to avoid this mistake ourselves, but also because it is likely the case that this notion of rules, regulations, is exactly what your non-Christian friends and neighbors think the Christian faith is all about. It's likely the case that your non-Christian friends and neighbors think that the Christian faith is just a list of rules to keep, right? Do this, don't do that. Definitely don't do that. But if you do, all you have to do is say, I'm sorry, keep the rules, perform the rituals, do this, don't do that. It's amazing, actually, how many people's misunderstandings of the Christian faith are that Christian faith is do this, don't do that. Maybe even for people who have been in church their whole lives still think that the Christian faith is just a matter of do this, don't do that. Friends, Paul confronts this notion and says it is not an accurate understanding of the faith for lots of reasons, but here's just two of them. This is why the gospel is not do this, don't do that. First of all, it's not accurate because Paul says that that whole method is according to human precepts and teachings. At the end of verse 22, he says that. Why do you do this? Why do you submit to regulations when these are, at the end of verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings? In other words, he's saying it's just earthly wisdom. It's just earthly, vain thought. At the end of the day, it's just behavior modification. And Paul is saying behavior modification is not the same thing as sincere Christian transformation. Now, I want to be very clear and qualifying all this here. Growing in Christ and being transformed as a Christian believer is about changing. And that change does manifest itself on the outside in your behavior. The true Christian believer should be growing in their Christian sincerity on the outside of their behavior. But Paul is saying that Christian growth is not just on the outside, not just behavior modification. It begins on the outside and then it manifests itself outward. Holiness does not consist only in the implementation of strategies to break bad habits if the heart is unchanged. If your heart is not changed, 
it doesn't matter how much you externally modify. The inside is what is corrupted. There's all kinds of metaphors that Jesus uses for this. We can think of several, but consider the one when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. You make sure the outside is spick and span, but on the inside, where it really counts, it's rotting and dead. It doesn't matter how clean the outside is if the inside isn't transformed. Worldly methods of behavior modification can't affect the heart. So Paul says, this is not the way of Christ because it's only according to human precepts and teachings. If you understand the gospel is do this, don't do that, Paul says that's human precepts and teachings. It's only according to human wisdom and not according to Christ. It's not accurate for that reason. But then also, secondly, secondly and very dangerously, because, he says, it has the appearance of wisdom. There in verse 23, do you see where he says? These indeed, and what he's referring to is the idea that you can apply these regulations to yourselves and manage yourselves into better behavior. He says these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Human precepts and teachings, behavior modification, affecting only the outside, it appears to be wise. So what Paul is doing there is he's acknowledging that at least it gives the appearance of a real sincerity. Right? You could, you could put perfume all over a corpse. It may appear to be wise. And the first scent you get might be sweet, but then as you move closer, you smell death. Now, what Paul is saying here is that oftentimes we find ourselves stumbling in sin, struggling, right? I like to think of it sometimes as stumbling along the narrow road. You're trying to be faithful, you're trying to be sincere, but you trip, you fall, you struggle, you sin, right? That's why we confess our sins. Now, this is very practical because it gets to just at the moment when you do the thing you said you weren't going to do, right? And last time you said, that's going to be the last time. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that that time is the last time. And then there you are ago again saying, how did I get here again? So it's just at that moment when you have to understand what is the right course for me to take. Is the right course for me to take to bear down and, and grit my teeth and, and put more rules on myself and, and, and really manage myself into Christian holiness? Or is it something else? Paul says if you think it's managing yourself, if you think that the Christian faith is just organizing the old Adam in you, managing your fallen flesh, then you don't understand and you're being led down a trap. When you say to yourself, how did I get here again? I thought I put this behind me. How is it possible that I'm here again? And you think, let me just add more rules. You know what that does? It just compounds the shame when you fail again next time, doesn't it? Because you said, oh, last time was supposed to be the last time, and here I am again. And you know what it actually does? Instead of leading you to freedom, it leads you deeper into slavery that you put yourself in because you said, okay, this time I won't. And that's not the way of the gospel is what Paul is saying. When we break our promises to never again, and we do again, that's not the way. What we should be asking is, 
Why do I do that? What is it in me that inclines myself to disobey rather than obey? What is it in me that inclines myself to unrighteousness rather than righteousness? What is it in me that, that longs for sin rather than obedience? Now this is why this is so important. It's because I think oftentimes sincere Christian people don't get this right. And I think at least hopefully we can all confess that there have been times where we have not gotten this right. And I, I have encountered myself in seasons like this, but I've also known people who, are, I like to say, are baptized in vinegar. They think that the Christian life is just supposed to make them sour. And their whole life is about rules and what they do and don't do and the joylessness of their life. They want to come across as really serious. So they don't do this and they don't do that. And if you do it, they look scowways at you. It's like they're baptized in vinegar, not joyful, but sour. You know what Paul calls that? You see it there in verse 23? It's a really interesting word in the original language, but it's translated as self-made religion. Self-made religion. It can also be translated most literally as will worship. Will worship. And what Paul is saying is that that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not self-made religion. The Christian faith is not will worship. The Christian faith is Christ worship. Not self-worship, Christ worship. But the mistake that we have been making from the beginning, literally from Adam, is that we think it is actually all about us. Adam said, I will take for myself and so he took. It was true of Adam that he fell into self-made religion. It was true in the first century. And that's why Paul is writing what he's saying here to the church of Colossae. Why do you submit yourself to this? Why do you submit yourself to this self-made regulations? You're adding these burdens to yourself. This is not the way of the Christian life. You're trying to invent a new way that you do according to yourself. That's not the way. It was true for Adam. It was true in the first century. It's still true today. This issue that Paul talks about here is still wildly prevalent, prevalent in the Christian church. Thinking that we can add rules and regulations to make ourselves appear more spiritual, when in reality, it's not transforming us. We don't look more like Jesus. We're just attempting to appear to be more spiritual, according to our own self-made religion, Paul says. Self-made religion is what I do to reach God on my own and make myself seem impressive. It's strategies to just manage my sin so that it appears less outwardly obvious but is festering on the inside again, Jesus says. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. Are you more pleased with how you appear before others than who you really are before the Lord? Do you care more to appear spiritual to other people than you are in the sincerity of your own heart? Paul says, be warned from this self-made religion. It looks like self-discipline, but it's really self-worship. Self-nurturing, self-improvement, self-excess. It's all about you. It's not about Christ. Paul says, don't be given to this. It can't help you, and it will actually deceive you. 
So he reminds them. He reminds them of what is most important about them there in verse 20. What is most true about you? He says there, if with Christ you died. What Paul wants you and I to remember about the gospel, about the Christian faith, is that the gospel is not self-made religion. It's not will worship. The gospel and the Christian faith is the glory of having a Savior. The Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you, you died in Him. You died in Him. That, that old you, that old Adam, that you according to the flesh, you according to sin and misery, that's not who you are anymore. You died in Christ. If with Christ you died, why are you still living this way? He says, and you know what's interesting? Is that Paul has already said this like six times in the book of Colossians. But if you're like me, you need to hear it more than once. Right? You need to hear it many times. Paul explains here the most essential truth of the Christian life is that you as a Christian are hidden in Christ. You are united to Christ by faith. When you believe the gospel, when you receive Jesus Christ, you are united to, in union with, in relationship, connected to Christ. Paul says in verse 20, if with Christ you died, why are you still living like your old self? Now, let's survey just quickly what he already said. Because Paul has already said this again and again and again. And that's why it's so essential. He makes this point so frequently that your life is in Christ. It's not in yourself. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says that in Him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's chapter 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that in Christ we are reconciled in His body of the flesh by His death. Through what Christ has done, we are reconciled to God. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, We received Christ Jesus the Lord and must walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. That language of in Him is a reference to the union that we have with Christ by faith. Chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, we are filled in Him, filled in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11, we are circumcised in Him with a circumcision made without hands by faith. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, we were dead in sin, but now we're made alive together with Christ. Paul says, dear Christian believer, if you think your life is just about your effort and your trying and organizing your flesh, you don't understand the basics. The basics is that you are now alive in Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Christ, where every spiritual blessing comes to us by virtue of that union with Him, where all the blessings are found and hidden and reside, so that if we are Christian believers, Paul says, you're dead and now you're alive in Him. Very practically what he means then is that your sin, your outward patterns of disobedience, your struggles and your failures, they don't define you anymore. They don't make up your identity. Hear me very clearly, loved one. You, if you are in Christ, are not your sin. That's not who you are. Your identity is not your transgression. Who you are is who you are in Christ. 
Paul says, you are alive in him. And because you are alive in Jesus Christ, that's why it doesn't make sense to think that my progress is going to be a result of my clenched fists, teeth gritted human effort. That's not the way. That's self-worship. Paul says the Christian faith is not make yourself. The Christian faith is be who you already are. And, and as, as we unpack this and as we try to bring it very clearly to application, let me just say that there are some of us that need to be absolutely released from the burden of thinking that your Christian life depends on you. It doesn't. Your Christian life is hidden with Christ in God. You are alive in Christ. If you woke up today thinking that the entirety of your life is going to stand and fall on the record of your obedience, you're probably a very sad person. And I'm telling you that in Christ, you don't need to be. Your standing before God is not on the basis of the record of your performance. If it was, we would all be in trouble. But our standing before God is on the basis of Christ. We are in Him. So, as an as application to just draw this home to be very clear about this, let's contrast the two. Because Paul says, why do you do this? Don't, don't do this. So, what should we not do? We should not think of the Christian life as this clenched fifth fisted, teeth-gritted, human effort, thinking it's about human programs and church programs. There's no amount of external formalities, no amount of spiritual rigor, no matter how severely you treat your own body, no matter the amount of self-will and human effort, none of that is going to heal you. It might manage you on the outside, but it won't transform your heart. It's interesting today that... Um, you hear this terminology of a life coach, right? You can't accumulate enough life coaches to get this right merely on the outside. No matter how many life coaches you have and how many rules they give you, no amount of curbing your self-indulgence because it will not work because it's ultimately infinitely self-perpetuating. It doesn't matter how hard you work, you're going to fail. And if you think, well, I just need to try harder, that's an infinite loop of no satisfaction and sorrow, and it doesn't work. It's literally the definition of insanity, isn't it? Trying it again and again and again and again and again, doing it yourself. And so I just want to say to you, loved one, if that's you, you're exhausted. You are exhausted spiritually, if that's you. Jesus invites you to rest in Him and to stop thinking that your Christian life is all about you. He invites you to rest in Him. So rather than clench fists, the gospel is the picture of outstretched and empty hands. Not attempting to offer God some record of my obedience that's somehow impressive, the good news is that you can't do it and Christ has done it for you. Again, it doesn't mean that you do nothing. It doesn't matter that your life doesn't matter and it doesn't, matter that, it doesn't mean that your behavior isn't an important reality, but it means that as a Christian, the transformation happens first of all on the inside and then works its way outward where we first bring to the Lord 
the emptiness of my hands that says, Lord, it's not within me. You must transform me or else I will not be transformed. No matter what work we do or how much achievement we make, we will not outachieve the merits of a Savior, which is why we need Him. So if you only remember one thing, let it be this. Obedience does not purchase grace. You can't buy grace with your obedience. Obedience flows out of grace. It doesn't purchase it. When you see what Christ has done for you, when you understand what the gospel is, what happens is a transformation from the inside out as you follow the Lord in sincerity that says, He has loved me, I cannot but love Him. And the transformation happens by work of the Spirit rather than saying, I'm going to clean myself up so He'll love me. That's not the way. And dear friends, we need to learn this truth. Obedience does not purchase grace. Obedience flows out of grace. And we must learn that truth by knowing Jesus Christ, understanding that we are united to Him in His death, and there is no amount of management that we can do that is greater than that truth. So let me just ask you by way of application then, this whole way of regulation and rules, is there somebody in your life that is attempting to submit you to regulations? Is there somebody in your life that is attempting to burden you and is acting as a judge in some area of your life that is not vital to Christianity and actually strikes at the heart of the gospel? Is someone doing that to you? Paul says, don't submit to them. You know what that would look like? It looks like spiritual abuse. It looks like pastors telling their congregations, you can't do this. And if you do, you're in trouble. I've been in churches like that. Where if you go to the movies, you get put on a list. That's spiritual abuse. Is someone forcing you upon regulations? Or, let me also ask you, can you search your heart and ask yourself, do you force upon somebody else a regulation? Do you force upon somebody else or are you trying to mediate their spiritual relationship by saying, I'm going to give you rules that you have to follow if I'm going to be in fellowship with you? Are you acting as a judge over somebody else in an area not vital to Christianity? And if you are, repent. Repent. Don't burden your loved ones, your brothers, your sisters, your family members with regulations that are outside the context of God's Word. And finally... What's more likely the case, perhaps, is do you do it to yourself? That rather than believing the gospel, are you trying to regulate yourself into being pleasing before God by just rule keeping? Are you doing it to yourself? Or do you recognize that you have in the past, perhaps? Or are you wary of maybe doing it right now? <clears throat> to you, Paul says, loved one, you are alive in Jesus Christ. The record of your performance is not needed. God is not impressed with it. He is longing that we rest in the work that Jesus has done for us and so be transformed from the inside out rather than attempting to transform ourselves from the outside in because it doesn't work. Dear friends, 
Paul says, take this wisdom upon yourself and apply the gospel. Loved ones, may it be true. Let us do it together in the strength of the Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you now that you, according to your grace, are at work to transform us through your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to believe the gospel sincerely from our hearts and no longer give ourselves over to worldly regulations that have the appearance of wisdom, but instead rest in the infinite wisdom and fullness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.